welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Womance public access read-along of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. My name is Morgan. I am the Odd Chapter Reader, and I am joined as ever by my friend Isabeau, who reads me the even chapters. Hey, Isabeau. Hey, Morgan. What's up? Uh, not much. Just kind of looking forward to Chapter 7 and just racking my brain trying to remember what happened in Chapter 6. I hope you can help me out. You know, it was so long ago. There's basically <laughs> no such thing as chapter six. Uh, let me tell you what happened in chapter six. We actually had quite a bit of things happening. The ladies of Longbourn. <laughs> this is the most stally stalling I've ever heard. What happened in chapter six is several things. One of the things that happened in chapter six is a thing that happened in chapter six. Correct, indeed. The ladies of Longburn went to visit the ladies of Netherfield. Everyone had pretty good feelings, except for our girl Lizzie, who's like, they fucking suck. Um, And then we had Charlotte giving some really excellent advice in general about how to go about getting a man. Uh, She's just given her friend the what is what. And then they went to another dance. And Mr. Lucas, or Sir Lucas, rather, he's very proud of his title, uh, encouraged Lizzie to dance with Mr. Darcy. And she didn't want a repeat of the mishap at uh, the original ball where he found her nothing but tolerable. And so she didn't give him the opportunity to turn her down. She's just like, I'm not going to fucking dance, Sir Lucas. Thank you very much. And Mr. Darcy shared. That he likes her eyes. Darcy has tender feelings for Lizzie. They have bloomed in his stone-cold heart with 10,000 a year. Well, I wonder what's going to happen in Chapter 7. Okay. Chapter 7 awaits. Mr. Bennett's property consisted almost entirely in an estate of 2,000 a year, which, unfortunately for his daughters was entailed in default of heir's mail on a distant relation. And their mother's fortune, though ample for her situation in life, could but ill supply the deficiency of his. Her father had been an attorney in Meryton and had left her 4,000 pounds. She had a sister married to a Mr. Phillips, who had been a clerk to their father and succeeded him in the business, and a brother settled in London in a respectable line of trade. The village of Longbourn was only one mile from Meryton, a most convenient dif- distance for the young ladies, who were usually tempted thither three or four times a week to pay their duty to their aunt and to a milliner's shop just over the way. The two youngest of the family, Catherine and Lydia, were particularly frequent in these attentions. Their minds were more vacant than their sisters, and when nothing better offered, a walk to Meryton was necessary to amuse their morning hours and furnish conversation for the evening. And however bare of news the country in general might be, they always contrived to learn some from their aunt. At present, indeed, they were well supplied both in news and happiness by the recent arrival of a militia regiment in the neighborhood. It was to remain the whole winter, and Meryton was the headquarters. Quick question. Mm -hmm. So news to me is clearly like a double entendre for gossip. Yes. Is it clear in the book? Yes. 
Is it intentional that the audience should know that by news she means gossip? Yes. Okay. Their visits to Mrs. Phelps were now productive of the most interesting intelligence. Every day added something to their knowledge of the officers' names and connections. Their lodgings were not long a secret. <laughs> See, like you can where they live. <laughs> <laughs> They're being doxxed by Kat, Kitty and Lydia. What are their names? Where do they sleep? <laughs> Let me find out. <laughs> doxxed. Their lodgings were not long a secret, and at length they began to know the officers themselves. That's so weird to know where someone lives. Well, I guess it's officers. They all bunk in the same place. I still think it's weird. It is weird that a 15 and 16-year-old would be in possession of this information. Well, although, if you remember when you were 15 and 16, you knew where the military bases were. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's <laughs> the weirdest double entendre. Oh, it's not a double entendre. I mean, you literally knew where military bases were. I knew where the ones in my state were. Well, there you go. I guess. Do I? Did I know where Fort Leonard Wood was? Also, 15 and 16-year-old girls getting hung up on young men in the army is still very much happening in this day and age. Absolutely true. And they didn't even have movies like Top Gun Maverick to wet their whistles. No, they just had Top Gun, regular <laughs> Top Gun that already existed in almost the exact same fashion. They didn't have movies in 1814. Oh, I thought you meant when we were young. <laughs> no, no. No, they just had parades. They had military parades. Yeah. Which is doing the same thing as Top Gun. That's true. That's a really good point. <laughs> Donald Trump demanded a military parade, and we got Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Every day added something new to their knowledge of the officers' names and connections. Their lodgings were not long a secret, and at length they began to know the officers themselves. Mr. Phillips visited them all, and this opened to his nieces a source of felicity unknown before. They could talk of nothing but officers, and Mr. Bingley's large fortune, the mention of which gave animation to their mother, was worthless in their eyes when opposed to the regimentals of an ensign. Is it ensign or ensign? Ensign. See, none of the above. Ensign. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, I get why they left it out of the movies. They probably didn't leave it out of the movies. They didn't. After listening one morning to their effusions on this subject, Mr. Bennett coolly observed, From all that I can collect by your manner of talking, you must be two of the silliest girls in the country. I have sus suspected it some time, but I am now convinced. Catherine was disconcerted and made no answer. But Lydia, with perfect indifference, continued to express her admiration of Captain Carter and her hope of seeing him in the course of the day, as he was going the next morning to London. I am astonished, my dear, said Mrs. Bennet, that you should be so ready to think your own children silly. If I wish to think slightingly of anybody's children, it should not be of my own, however. If my children are silly, I must hope to always be sensible of it. Yes, but as it happens, they are all of them very clever. <laughs> this is the only point I flatter myself 
on which we do not agree. I had hoped that our sentiments coincided in every particular, but I must so far differ from you as to think our two youngest daughters uncommonly foolish. My dear Mr. Bennet, you do not expect such girls to have the sense of their father and mother. When they get to our age, I dare say they will not think about officers any more than we do. I remember the time when I liked a red coat myself very well, and indeed so I do still at my heart. And if a smart young colonel with five or six thousand a year should want one of my girls, I shall not say nay to him. And I thought Colonel Foster looked very becoming the other night at Sir William's in his regimentals. Mama, cried Lydia, my aunt says that Colonel Forster and Captain Carter do not go so often to Miss Watson's as they did when they first came. She sees them now very often standing in Clark's library. Mrs. Bennet was prevented replying by the entrance of the footman with a note for Miss Bennet. It came from Netherfield, and the servant waited for an answer. Mrs. Bennet's eyes sparkled with pleasure, and she was eagerly calling out while her daughter read, Well, Jane, who is it from? What is it about? What does he say? Well, Jane, make haste and tell us, make haste, my love. It is from Mr. Bingley, said Jane, and then read it out loud. My dear friend, if you are not so compassionate as to dine today with Louisa and me, we shall be in danger of hating each other for the rest of our lives, for a whole day's tete-a-tete -tete between two women can never end without a quarrel. Come as soon as you can on the receipt of this. My brother and the gentlemen are to dine with the officers. Yours ever, Caroline Bingley. With the officers, cried Lydia. I wonder my aunt did not tell us of that. Dining out, said Mrs. Bennet. That is very unlucky. Can I have the carriage? said Jane. No, my dear, you had better go on horseback, because it seems likely to rain, and then you must stay all night. That would be a good scheme, said Elizabeth, if you were sure that they would not offer to send her home. Oh, but the gentlemen will have Mr. Bingley's chaise to go to Meryton, and the Hursts have no horses to theirs. I'd much rather go in the coach. But, my dear, your father cannot spare the horses. I am sure they are wanted at the farm. Mr. Bennet are not they. They are wanted in the farm much oftener than I can get them. But if you have got them today, said Elizabeth, my mother's purpose will be answered. She did at last extort from her father an acknowledgment that the horses were engaged. Jane was therefore obliged to go on horseback, and her mother attended her to the door with many cheerful prognostics of a bad day. Her hopes were answered. Jane had not been gone long before it rained hard. Her sisters were uneasy for her, but her mother was delighted. The rain continued the whole evening without intermission. Jane certainly would not come back. This was a lucky idea of mine indeed, said Mrs. Bennet, more than once, as if the credit of making it rain were all her own. Till the next morning, however, she was not aware of the felicity of her contrivance. She was not aware of all the felicity of her contrivance. Breakfast was scarcely over when a servant from Netherfield brought the following note for Elizabeth. My dearest Lizzie, I find myself very unwell this morning, which, I suppose, is to be imputed to my getting wet through yesterday. My kind friends will not hear of my returning home till I am better. They insist on my seeing Mr. Jones. Therefore, do not be alarmed if you should hear of his having been to me and accepting a sore throat and headache 
There's not much the matter with me. Yours, etc. Well, my dear, said Mr. Bennet when Elizabeth read the note out loud, if your daughter should have a dangerous fit of illness, if she should die, it would be a comfort to know that it was all in pursuit of Mr. Bingley and under your orders. Oh, I am not at all afraid of her dying. People do not die of little trifling colds. She will be taken good care of. As long as she stays there, it is all very well. I would go and see her if I could have the carriage. Elizabeth feeling really anxious, was determined to go to her, though the carriage was not to be had, and as she had no horsewoman, or as she was no horsewoman, walking was her only alternative. She declared her resolution. "'How can you be so silly,' cried her mother, "'as to think such a thing in all this dirt? You will not be fit to be seen when you get there. I shall be very fit to see Jane, which is all I want.' "'Is this a hint to me, Lizzie?' said her father, "'to send for the horses.' No, indeed, I do not wish to avoid the walk. The distance is nothing. When one has a motive, only three miles. I shall be back by dinner. I admire the activity of your benevolence, observed Mary, but every impulse of feeling should be guided by reason, and in my opinion, exertion should always be in proportion to what is required. We will go as far as Maryton with you, said Catherine and Lydia. <laughs> Jane's fine. Let's see about those officers in their homes. Yeah, good excuse. Elizabeth accepted their company, and the three young ladies set off together. If we make haste, said Lydia as they walked along, perhaps we may see something of Captain Carter before he goes. In Maryton they parted, the two youngest repaired to the lodgings of one of the officers' wives, and Elizabeth continued her walk alone, crossing field after field at a quick pace, jumping over stiles and springing over puddles with impatient activity, and finding herself at last within view of the house, with weary ankles, dirty stockings, and a face glowing with the warmth of exercise. She was shown into the breakfast parlor, where all but Jane were assembled, and where her appearance created a great deal of surprise. That she should have walked three miles so early in the day, in such dirty weather, and by herself, was almost incredible to Mrs. Hunt and Miss Bingley, and Elizabeth was convinced that they held her in contempt for it. She was received, however, very politely by them, and in their brother's manners there was something better than politeness. There was good humor and kindness. Mr. Darcy said very little and Mr. Hurst, nothing at all. The former was divided between admiration of the brilliancy which exercise had given her complexion and doubt as to the occasions justifying her coming so far alone. The latter was thinking only of his breakfast. Her inquiries after her sister were not favorably answered. Miss Bennet had slept ill, and though up, was very feverish and not well enough to leave her room. Elizabeth was glad to be taken to her immediately, and Jane who had been withheld by the fear of giving alarm or inconvenience from expressing in her note how much she longed for such a visit, was delighted at her entrance. She was not equal, however, to much conversation, and when Miss Bingley left them together could attempt little beside expressions of gratitude for the extraordinary kindness she was treated with. Elizabeth si silently attended her. When breakfast was over, they were joined by the sisters, and Elizabeth began to like them herself when she saw how much affection and solicitude they showed for Jane. The apothecary came, and having examined his patient, said, as might be supposed, that she had caught a violent cold, and that they must endeavor to get the better of it, advised her to return to bed, and promised her some drafts. 
The advice was followed readily, for the feverish symptoms increased, and her head ached acutely. Elizabeth did not quit her room for a moment, nor were the other ladies often absent. The gentlemen being out, they had in fact nothing to do elsewhere. When the clock struck three, Elizabeth felt that she must go, and very unwillingly said so. Miss Bingley offered her the carriage, and she only wanted a little pressing to accept it. When Jane testified such concern in parting with her that Miss Bingley was obliged to convert the offer of the chaise into an invitation to remain at Netherfield for the present, Elizabeth most thankfully consented, and a servant was dispatched to Longbourn to acquaint the family with her stay and bring back a supply of clothes. Nicely done, everyone. And that is the end of Chapter 7! What did you think? I think, not unlike its predecessor, Chapter 6, a chapter in which many things happened. <laughs> and strangely, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. I, I do like how relatable it feels in this, even today, growing up in a small town um, and having such, like, your small town is connected to like a slightly larger also small town and you have to kind of like get your branches into all of these different small towns in order to have like enough interest in your like I knew the gossip of every little town that surrounded me and they all knew gossip about us you know mm-hmm. and I especially remember summers spent going to the other different small towns to spend time at their public pool you know, see like new boys and stuff. And that seems to be what Katie and Lydia, Kitty and Lydia are up to. I like that Mrs. Bennett is so loyal and that she refers to all of the children as clever um, <laughs> and is quibbling with Mr. Bennett on that point at all times. I like that. I think it's important that she says all of her daughters are clever right before she herself does something very clever. Mm-hmm. It's quite scheming, mm-hmm. and it is risky. Mm-hmm. But I think Mr. Bennett is mostly mad about the illness because she was right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. Like nobody is really that concerned for Jane's health other than Elizabeth, and like that whole thing about like nobody dies of colds. And like mm, people have died of colds in the early 1800s. Uh, that was a gamble. Yeah, especially, and just, like, being miserable. Like, the fact that I still wear my N95 mask in public, like, I just don't want to be, here's lowest barrier for me, I don't want to catch a cold. Those suck. Yeah, they do. And I think people need to remember how much having a cold sucks. Yeah. The other thing, so I was thinking, like, maybe this is shifting my perspective on the book's perspective on Mrs. Bennett, because I'm like, oh, she, like, points out all of her daughters are very clever right before she herself does something very clever. But then I'm like, is that right? Or is the book's perspective on clever different from being, like, intelligent and witty? Yeah, I don't think the book thinks that that move was clever so much as scheming. And scheming isn't necessarily a shade of clever. I don't know about that, but I do know that the book might, but I I do have that feeling that the book might be trying to separate cleverness, at least, from what Mr. Bennett has going on for him. Mm -hmm. 
which is admirable. Okay, never mind. I don't think the book has shifted my perspective on its perspective on Mrs. Bennett. We'll see, right? Like, she is so much more insistent on the intelligence of her daughters that, like, I'm willing to see if this book is more charitable. That's the thing. Like, I'm not sure if she's insistent on their intelligence. Or if she's just insistent on, like, sparring with Mr. Bennett. Or just, like, wiles, you know. Which is a kind of intelligence, but I don't think this book respects that fact. It does not. It does not seem to, at least. But we get our very first uh, Lizzie um, fault, I guess. She's not a good horsewoman. (laughs) Use that in your next job interview when they ask you your greatest weakness. I'm not a good horsewoman. I'm not a great horsewoman. I have to walk everywhere and be beautiful uh, because of the exercise. I think we get also a deeper kind of dive. Well, not even dive, but a deeper. It felt like at the end of chapter six, when we find out that Darcy likes Lizzie, he thinks Mm -hmm. she's like the most entertaining woman in the village. That's sort of like stepping in the puddle of his attraction. Yeah. I feel like this one was like a little hop into the puddle of his attraction, this like mm. fleeting moment where he talks about where he notices how exerted, how beautiful she is in her exertion and then worries about how exerted she is. And then the other guy's just thinking about his breakfast. Yeah, totally. He's like, oh, man, she's so strong and so beautiful. She shouldn't have come all this way alone. But also doing that like wonderful work that romance novels love to do whenever they're uh, doing their heteronormative thing where it's like you can't tell if a man is thinking about his breakfast or how beautiful you are. So maybe he's thinking about how beautiful you are. <laughs> Could be. Because they're sphinxes. <laughs> that should have been alternate name for the podcast, Boy Sphinxes. Boy Sphinxes. That's good. I like that. That's actually, that's a pretty good band name. Yeah, that's a great band name. With that, Loosen your prejudices. And maybe your pride. We know how I feel about that at this point (laughs) after seven chapters. So I'm going to let it lie. That was big of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.